0: Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Our guest today is Cisco Aguilar. Cisco was elected as Nevada Secretary of State in 2022 and assumed office on January 2, 2023. As an attorney and small business owner, and with years of experience in the private and public sectors, Cisco brings a unique perspective and expertise into the Secretary of State's office. So this brings us to another key result of the election, as highlighted by this morning's cover of the New York Post. Quote, deniers denied, with the paper noting that all the Trump-backed candidates in key swing states who denied the 2020 election results while vying to be their state's top election official Lost For someone running to be Nevada's chief elections officer, Republican Secretary of State candidate Jim Marchand doesn't seem to want to say much. What are you here talking about? Election integrity. And, and what do you mean by that? Uh, election integrity. Nevada's newly elected Secretary of State Democrat Cisco Aguilar, who defeated one of those Republican election deniers. Biden delivering an urgent warning about Republican candidates who will not commit to
1: accepting midterm results. We can't take democracy for granted any longer. Hi, I'm Cisco Aguilar. Nevada has some of the most accessible elections in the country, and we're going to continue to fight so that they remain accessible. Sorry, not sorry.
0: Cisco, tell our listeners a bit about who you are and your life before becoming Secretary of State.
1: Look, I was a typical kid who grew up in Tucson, Arizona, in a typical Latino family. Super fortunate to be the next or the current Secretary of State of Nevada. This is a big role given Nevada's deep purple state and the impact we could have on a potential presidential election. I grew up, as I said, in Tucson, moved to Las Vegas about twenty years ago, had the fortunate opportunity to spend the last fourteen years working with Andre Agassi and Stephanie Graf and truly understanding what it means to be part of a community have a responsibility to serve your community, but also make sure that you're doing work that's in the best interest with the best heart.
0: You ran in Nevada, which is, would you say, a pretty closely divided state?
1: Oh, yeah. Nevada is a very deep purple state. And it's also very libertarian.
0: So a Trump-backed sheriff was elected governor, defeating an incumbent Democrat. But you were elected. Senator Cortez Mastro was reelected, and there is a Democratic legislature. Tell us a bit about the political landscape in your state and how it became so purple.
1: I think the fact that looking at the history of Nevada and the way it's voted, its population growth over the last couple of decades, the impact of Senator Reid having a vision and a plan for our state and executing strong on that plan, he worked diligently to ensure that we were able to bring a voice to the Democratic Party. And a lot of times that Democratic Party here in Nevada is made up of working folks. The people that hold up the strip in Las Vegas Boulevard every day are hardworking folks. And giving them a political power and giving them an opportunity to exercise their voice through the fundamental right to vote.
0: There's so much going on right now. And secretaries of state are vital to upholding our democracy and ensuring that we Continue to have a democracy. In your view, what is the most important role for you in particular, personally, and for secretaries of state in general, looking at how divided the country is?
1: My opponent was the most dangerous candidate in America. He was the most dangerous because he was making a predetermination about the outcome of the presidential election in 24 without regard to any of the voters in Nevada. And I think when Nevada's heard that if he were elected secretary of state, Donald Trump would be the next president of the United States. As we know, overturning the 2020 election didn't work. So
0: now big lie believers are setting their sights on overseeing elections. As we've noted before, at least 163 Republicans who have embraced Trump's lies are running for statewide office. Of those, 18 are gunning for the top election post. Secretary of State, the idea that conspiracy theorists could soon run our elections isn't
1: too far-fetched when you consider how voters are receiving them. That's a strong statement to make to a Nevada. When you're going to tell a Nevadan, either Republican or Democrat, that you're going to take away their right to vote for the next president because you've made a predetermined decision, that's a very serious statement.
0: And we're seeing that local and state election officials are, it's a dangerous job. Very dangerous. State election officials, they're facing threats from election deniers, from extremists, from the extreme right. What is going on, first of all, and how do we stop it?
1: I think people have been empowered on a false foundation. It's unpacking that false foundation, but at the same time, it's a secretary of state standing up and saying, our elections do not work if we do not have the human component. And if people are afraid to step up to volunteer to work a polling site, people are afraid to go to work in elections departments. Somebody has to stand up and say, enough is enough. I have your back. We are doing that. We just introduced legislation, this legislative cycle, to make it a felony to harass or intimidate election workers and election volunteers. And it's bringing civility back to this process because we could have all the technology in the world. We could have all the resources in the world. We could have all the access to the ballot box that we have here in Nevada. But if we don't have the human component and don't respect the human component, our elections are not going to work the way we want them to work.
0: Nevada recently expanded vote by mail and this has been a cause for some maybe all the ire from the election deniers. Can you explain to my listeners like how it works and why it is secure?
1: I think first we have to recognize that there are other states in the country that are doing this and have been doing this for 30 to 40 years. Utah has been doing this and that's a deep red state. And the fact that it works for their electric and they've adopted it and they use it and they depend on it, just shows that the system does work. But we have people spreading false information because they know that if we get every Nevadan to the polls, certain individuals are never gonna win an election. And that's what they're afraid about. They're afraid that Nevadans are gonna have voices, they're gonna exercise that voice, and they're gonna determine what our future looks like.
0: We have, I think, become so used to instant, not only gratification, but instant information, the past couple of decades. And we are a generation where we click a button and get confirmation bias and all of our kitchen supplies in in five minutes. (laughs) And I think it makes it hard for people to just sit back and let the votes get counted and wait for results to come in. Walk us through what's happening in the days after election day before results are delivered.
1: Obviously, there are certain populations that use mail ballots. There are certain populations that really engage in the political process by walking up to a ballot box and voting on that day. What we did here in Nevada with mail ballots is one of the greatest things we could have done. Because on the first day of early voting, there was a massive wind dust storm. And so people weren't going out to the polls. They still had the option to exercise that fundamental right by using their mail ballot. The last day of early voting, we had another storm. Election day, there was a big rainstorm in the South. There was a massive snowstorm up in the North. People still had options to vote. And what you're seeing is our working folks are using the mail ballot to vote because if you're asking them after a 12-hour shift to go and vote, or you're saying, hey, on election day, you should go vote and not go to work. Our families are struggling here. They're working every day to provide food on the table, to pay for health insurance, especially our sole proprietors, right? Our economy is shifting in the workforce. Nevada has a ton of sole proprietors. Those are Uber drivers. And if you're saying we want you to go stand in line for four hours to vote on a Tuesday, that's four hours of revenue that they could use to support their family. When we easily know that mail ballots work, voters are starting to exercise that fundamental right through mail and drop off that ballot at a voting center, you're seeing that participatory government take place that we want to see.
0: Yeah, and they're closing polling places too. So it is four hours. It is a whole day event to go vote, sadly. And it's so funny that it needs further justification than just simply looking at the pandemic.
1: But it's also too just it's people who know they can't win an election the more people that vote. Because they're not providing a sustainable policy agenda. And when that agenda is not sustainable, or it has holes, or they're doing it for self interest because they have a big ego, they shouldn't be elected.
0: No, they shouldn't. And there's nothing to show that those aren't the motivations for the Republican Party. Certainly, it feels like their agenda is not for the people. And one of the things I see is that leads go back and forth as they're counting votes. There's an election taking place when, in fact, there are votes that have already been cast. Do you think that the piecemeal way we report elections, the way the media reports election results? is the right way to report?
1: Look, mail ballots are still new to Nevada. There are systems and processes we can improve upon to make that process even smoother. The fact the way Utah reports their election results, the way Oregon has reported with mail-in ballots, there are things we can learn to do these processes better. But the very end, if you're going to jeopardize access or having a full vote count, we need to be very cautious about it. And we need to take great extremes to ensure that every vote is counted because we've had some very close elections in Nevada that have come down to 10 votes.
0: In the Senate race, the Republican challenger, Adam Laxalt, is currently in the lead over incumbent Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto. But election officials today, they held a news conference where they talked about all of these votes, including these mail-in ballots that are let, yet, yet to be counted. Uh, let's listen to what they had to say.
1: We have 14,718 mail ballots that weren't read last night that will go in today. Those will be reported in the evening when we release our new results report. They've come down to 350 votes. And when you're making decisions about the future of the state, we need to ensure that vote is extremely accurate. And the only way to do that is to take the time and make sure the processes are followed and the law is followed.
0: But do you think people would be More or maybe less likely to trust results that were reported like once in total than the way it trickles in, and like this one's ahead, this one's ahead. You know, like how do we better provide the information to people in your state so that they trust election results more?
1: Those of us that administer elections to step back and say, okay, we learned these experiences from the last election cycle. What can we do to improve? But it's also to, you mentioned it earlier. People want information in real time. It's no different than your stock portfolio. Any given time, you can sign on and know the value of that portfolio because you have real time data. You have some losers in there and you have some people manipulating the process along the line. But in the end, it's a very secure system. It's no different in voting. We need that information that's provided real time. Voters want that information because, and I think to a point, it's like a scoreboard, right? It goes up and down, but it's going because there's reasons why. That is happening. The less we can take out the volatility of that by having greater capacity and greater staff to count those votes, I think you'll see some of that concern start to decrease.
0: Okay, let's talk about 2024. Are you foreseeing challenges in your state of Nevada for the 2024 election?
1: First, we have to figure out what's going to occur in the primary, right? Nevada was just selected as the second primary in the country. Actually, our early voting starts the same day as South Carolina's voting. So in a way, we're almost first, but the results won't be telling until after the South Carolina date. We're looking at that if Biden decide, chooses to run for re-election. Obviously, that primary has been determined. If he chooses not to run, Nevada will become a central battleground state for the presidential primary. Things will get exciting. We will have a lot of visitors in town. We're starting to get... Some of that force now, but it's making sure that we run a presidential primary to the point that people recognize that Nevada is one of the most diverse states in the country from a voter base. One, we have it from a workforce perspective, but we also have it from an ethnic perspective. And knowing that those groups are coming together to determine the future leadership of our country is very critical. And having a voice to make that decision is pretty amazing. And I'm super proud of Nevada taking that step, taking that effort. And following the strategic plan of Senator Reid. But when it comes down to the general election in 24, of course, we just have to sit back and wait and make sure that we're ready to go, take the learnings we've had from the last couple of cycles where these individuals have engaged, and be able to beat them at their own game.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what else can you do, right? My mother, when I was a teenager, every time I left the house, she'd say, think ahead. And I think it's that same thing. We have to go into 2024, all of us, thinking ahead. And speaking of the future, the Supreme Court is considering Moore v. Harper, which would basically give total control of state elections to state legislators. What impact would this have on our elections?
1: Well, again, Nevada, obviously, I would assume the Democrats are in power and they would make the right decision when it came to that issue. However, there's people that want to manipulate the system for their own self benefit. And we can't have that. We have to have a process that's clear, that's transparent, and that people know when their vote is executed, that vote is going to count and that vote is going to matter. That is detrimental to that thought process. And it's detrimental to, I think, the trust in the process and the system. So it scares me. It concerns me.
0: Just over 45% of voters cast ballot in the midterms. And somehow, not quite sure how, this is called high voter turnout, how do we get more people to participate in elections?
1: It's accessibility. It's continuing to ensure that people understand the value of mail ballots. It's making sure that people are educated about the process. Across the country, there has been a disinvestment in civic education. Which is why Lou started
0: Citizen University, a program which travels the country teaching Americans of all ages the lost art of civics.
1: Civic Saturday is about taking seriously our country's creed of liberty and equal justice. Going back to our younger population, our younger generation, I spent a lot of time on college campuses this last election cycle because I said, look, I know my race is going to be razor thin it's only going to take a certain amount of votes to win this race. Those votes are on these college campuses. So if I win this race, and when I do win this race, you can take credit for me winning. And you can come to me and say, hey, we made this possible. Here are our priorities as a younger generation. We hope you make them part of your plan.
0: Some states are just actively and not even in secret working to take away access to the ballot, especially for young people and people of color and people in low income communities. And then you see other states like Colorado and California and Michigan, for example, who have worked hard to expand it. The question is, did you think that these expansions should be nationalized?
1: Yeah. Anytime you're going to give a voter an opportunity to exercise that fundamental right on their terms, better off we're going to be in this country because it's more inclusive. Anytime you have a greater participation and you have more people voting, they're exercising their voice. And once you hear from more than those that are not participating, you're going to see a better direction. You're going to have a cohesive direction. One thing I'm super proud about in Nevada is when we implemented some of these policies, for example, in our native communities, you saw an increase of 25% in voting. That's a population of individuals who didn't exercise their voice before, and now they're making their voice heard.
0: I mean, I guess that's great. I just have such heartache that it's not more. Let's talk about your campaign for a second because we're fresh off of it and you campaigned for a while. And I'm always fascinated by the mechanics of not only any campaign, but a winning campaign. Was there anything that surprised you while you were running?
1: The willingness of Nevadans to have a conversation. And we have to go back to retail politics. We have technology now where we can make ourselves accessible to so many people. But it's that face-to-face conversation. It's knocking a door, somebody who wasn't going to vote, and seeing you at their door saying, hey, you're that guy on this flyer. And they take such great pride in the fact that you took the time to come talk to them. And some of those conversations and what we're talking about is priorities versus what their priorities are. It's amazing what you will learn when you're doing that door knocking. And you get some not-so-friendly folks. And those are conversations where you sit back and you say, why do you feel the way you feel? And get into a conversation, you talk about eliminating disinformation, those conversations work sometimes because somebody goes, I didn't know that existed. And now I understand. Thank you. And you could have flipped a vote.
0: It's really amazing that we became so through social media almost incapable of having those tough conversations that deep canvassing I think is so important even if you're in a state or a district or a county that is plus however many Republican and I think it's important to say that there's no area that we should not be in having those tough conversations now that you're in office what changes do you see making in your state
1: Obviously, it's going to be making sure we continue to have the access that we have. That's priority number one. Second is making sure we're taking care of the people who administer elections and making sure that they know somebody has their back so that they continue to do what we need them to do to have the elections that we have. It's also, to recognizing where can we build power among vulnerable communities, and that is giving people the opportunity to do what they've always dreamed to do. If they have a desire to open a small business. Small business is critical to giving people voice and power, especially in our vulnerable communities, in our Latino community, in our Black community, in our AAPI community. Is making sure that and understanding what we can do to get them the resources to open some of these businesses. Because if they're successful, they're going to hire their neighbors. They're going to employ their family. They're going to be powerful enough to know that they matter. And then in vote, will be voting. And that's what we need to do. And that's where the Secretary of State's office is powerful in Nevada every business in Nevada engages with the Secretary of State's office. And I don't think a lot of, you know, being of the Latino community, I know some of the struggles and challenges we have, finding access to capital to grow your business, but it's also knowing somebody understanding your community and saying, these are the challenges and these are the what well, we, barriers we need to eliminate so that we get that continued engagement. Look, somebody's never been in this office who looks like me or has my background. And so the fact that I have the background that I have I grew up the way I grew up. I have to understand those implications and make sure that I'm making the road easier for future generations. It's the only way you're really going to be heard effectively is to vote. When you don't vote, you give up your power. As Secretary of State, Dr. Shirley Weber is responsible for protecting the integrity of 22 million votes in California. She is the first African American to hold that position, and she has led the way to registering 900,000 college-age
0: voters this year alone. Of course, your governor has a very different philosophy than you do. How can you work together? Or how do you plan on working in opposition if you feel like that's what you need to do?
1: You know, and that's the thing that's surprising about Nevadans is once you're elected, I think people say, hey, we have some priorities in this state. We need to focus on those priorities where we can get a win. The policy differences need to go by the side, because that's not going to win anybody anything. And I hope that our governor will recognize that there are more good things to do than there are things to fight about. And I'm look, I'm a fighter. I'm super aggressive. But also at the same time, I want to make sure that we're make, all Nevadans are winning in everything we're doing. I just want to get the job done, hit our goals. But at the same time, yes, we're going to have policy agreements on some voting access issues. But it's not focusing on those issues and making those a priority. We can have conversations about those. And that's up to the legislature to decide where they are the mediator in these policy issues. And I have the confidence that they're going to make the right decision. I just want to, for
0: a second, just go back to election deniers. How did we get to a point where just people don't trust elections? And then what are the steps that you see that we need to take to overcome that?
1: I think early on, people thought this was an easy way to attack. And it was because it caught us off guard. But I think as you're electing secretary of states across this country on both sides of the aisle that are tough, that believe in our democracy, that are willing to fight for our democracy, they're starting to see some challenges to those ideas and prospects. Jocelyn Benson is an example of what a tough secretary of state looks like. She stood up. She's protected people. She knows the law. She knows when to fight. She knows when to push. But she also knows when there is a good policy argument and discussion to have. And I think it's recognizing that Secretary of State are no longer going to sit back. They're going to be proactive, and they're going to be engaged. And they're going to start to shut down these individuals who are trying to eliminate our democracy. At the beginning of the campaign, when I called my mom, and we were having a conversation early on, and I said, Mom, this is about democracy. She goes, What does that mean? She wanted to know how we were going to work on the priorities of those voters across our state. But as the campaign went on, people started to see those that were trying to challenge the process, who are election deniers, and started to recognize those are not the people we want in power. And they started to understand what the definition of democracy meant. And by the end of the campaign, we were standing up there saying, in grassroots neighborhoods, we are fighting for the future of democracy. And what that means is your access to the ballot box. And people got energized. They got motivated about that issue because they started to understand that election deniers could have a detrimental impact on the future of our state and country.
0: And their lives, their personal lives, to be able to connect those dots and really see how they are all intersectional and need to relate to one another. What do you think the role of the Secretary of State is in bringing new communities to vote? It's critical. How do we do that?
1: It's direct engagement. It's understanding the momentum we built on this campaign in the Latino community, in our native communities, in our API communities. We can't lose that momentum. I have to continue to be present, have to be continually educating. Also, too, in the beginning of this campaign, I felt like a civics teacher because I was explaining to everybody what the impact the Secretary of State could have on a variety of issues from public education to worker rights to our economy once they understood that, they started to recognize the importance of the Secretary of State's office. So it's me being engaged. It's getting people to understand what's at stake and understanding that they can make a difference if they get engaged now.
0: And we've seen these, when I think back to those midterm elections and the armed voter intimidation efforts at polls around the country, we saw A shooting at the homes and offices of Democrats, January 6th, for the love of God. How do we break this cycle of violence and intimidation that we're seeing right now?
1: We have to hold those accountable who are the underlying pot of these issues. And it's also, too, making them know that there's going to be consequences to the decisions they're going to make. That's why introducing legislation to make it a felony to harass or intimidate election workers and volunteers is going to hold those individuals accountable to say your behavior is no longer acceptable and you're going to be held accountable for it. So think twice about what you're doing.
0: The disinformation, do you know where it's coming from?
1: Coming from a small group of individuals. It was rampant among the Latino community, especially on Spanish radio, because there was no check on balances on the system. And what it was hitting was mostly Latino men. And so they're hearing this on the radio, but there's nobody to counter it. And so we have to get better at understanding where it exists and then confronting it. At the very end of the campaign, we did huge buys on Spanish radio to help counter some of this disinformation.
0: And did you call it what it was? Did you say, we know you're being hit with a lot of disinformation? It's so tricky and it's so fascinating to me because linguistics becomes really important, right? I do it with my kids, for God's sakes, right? Like i trying to get my son, who's 11, off his cell phone, right? And I just... Type in how cell phones are bad for, and it might be true, but you can find anything you want to believe. The confirmation bias is in full effect right now. So how do we do it? Do we regulate what's going on? Do we regulate the information?
1: COVID information, misinformation could start spreading unchecked on Twitter again, and that's because the platform has stopped enforcing those policies. Twitter didn't really make the announcement about the change. Instead, it added a line to the pages of its website outlining that policy, which reads, quote, effective November 23rd, 2022, Twitter is no longer enforcing the COVID-19 misleading information policy.
0: And then we have these people like Elon Musk with all the power in the world Who's basically weaponized the First Amendment, just like the gun manufacturers have weaponized the Second Amendment. How do we fight this?
1: It's just being stronger, being smarter, being strategic. We have to avoid being reactive. I think that's part of the problem is we get stuck in a bubble or we get stuck on a track and we're responding instead of saying, hey, let's step back. Let's figure out how to be stronger and more strategic about what they're doing, but do it from our perspective with facts.
0: So more proactive than reactive.
1: Absolutely. We have to get better at the game, right? It's a competitive thing. You can't go onto a field and say, I want to, I'm i going to wait to act until the other team shows their hand, right? you got to go in there with your own strategy, with your own plan, and be better at it, be stronger, and be ready to fight harder.
0: And finally, what gives you hope?
1: That the voters in Nevada made the right decision. And the fact that everybody is so energized to do the right thing, and to have hope that we can get to a better place. And this is a feeling among, look, I had broad support across Democrats. I had broad support across Republicans. And they understand that they want to see something positive, and they want to see hard work done. They want to see people fighting for the right reasons. They're tired of individuals with self-interest. And so we just got to continue to maintain that trust and deliver. Cisco, you give me hope.
0: Thank you for being a part of the podcast.
1: Thank you for continuing to have these conversations because without these conversations, we wouldn't be able to develop a plan. So thank you.
0: It was an enraged mob that had been whipped up into a frenzy by a president repeating over and over again the big lie that the election of 2020 had been stolen. It's a lie that fueled the dangerous rise in political violence and voter intimidation over the past two years. Even before January the 6th, we saw election officials and election workers in a number of states subject to menacing calls, physical threats, even threats to their very lives. we've said it on this show, time and time again, protecting the right to vote is not political. Ensuring free and fair elections is not political. And now, as the Supreme Court could append election law and give untold power to the states, it's more important than ever that secretaries of state who oversee elections are not election deniers, big lie supporters, or politically motivated to undermine elections. We need Cisco's in every state. We need to protect our votes, which are the very foundation of our democracy. And yes, trolls, our constitutional republic is, in fact, a democracy. We're about to see the 2024 elections ramp up in a huge way. We're lucky to have Cisco and others like him to make sure they're fair, accurate and transparent.